last week we saw that God's law was a great gift to his people. Paul called it holy and spiritual and says that its commands are holy, righteous, and good. It was a gift of grace, but it's a frustrating gift of grace because it could show people where they stood, but couldn't show them how to get where they were going. Knowing where you stand, though, is a valuable thing. In the summer of 2016, Karen and I were on a 70,000-acre lake in Quebec that we'd never been to before. On a, probably the third or fourth morning we were there, I went out by myself. I got up early, and the sun hadn't broken the horizon yet, and I'm in the boat, headed east, and the sky is just starting to turn colors. And there is steam rising everywhere off the lake. It was gorgeous. And so I was fumbling around for my camera and was trying to take pictures as I headed toward a bay that we'd fished the previous evening. I didn't want to stop the boat because, you know, I'm a fisherman, and I wanted to be there before the sun came up. So with the outboard at full throttle, I'd take a picture, and then I'd look at the view screen, and then I'd look up and take another picture, and then I'd look down at the view screen. And, and, and I did that for probably five to ten minutes, maybe. And I was passing through this strait that opened up into a much larger arm of the lake when I suddenly realized I had no idea where I was. I'd never been there before. It didn't look familiar. I was lost. When you don't know where you are, you don't know how to get where you're going. I immediately stopped the boat, and I'm sitting still on glassy water, I got out the rudimentary map that the camp owner gave us. It's more like one of those restaurant placemats than it was a real map. And I tried to figure out where I was. Now, I really could have used one of those arrows that you see on maps on the directory in the shopping mall that has the caption, you are here. In the part of the letter we're reading today, Paul stops for a moment. Everything's been flowing pretty quickly, but he stops for a moment He draws an arrow for the Roman church, and he says, you are here. Very shortly, he's going to tell us where we're going. But first, he orients us to where we are. We need to keep that in mind as we read the text. He's not saying, at least not in uh, verses 5 through 11, here's what you need to do. He's saying, here's where you are now. Let's read it, Romans 8, 5 through, I'll read through verse 13. I'll be reading out of the 2011 NIV. And I chose to read out of the 2011 because the uh, 1984 uses the phrase, the sinful nature to translate the word flesh over and over again. I think that's a little misleading. So I chose the 2011. There's some other things in here that aren't um, different that I prefer the 84 to, but I'll read it out of the 2011 for us. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh, or literally the mind of the flesh, is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit, is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, literally those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, 
literally the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In verse 4, which was the sentence just prior to where I began reading, Paul wrote that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. He did not say that we're fulfilled in the law. That would not be true. But that the law is fulfilled in us, not in everyone, but in us who live according to the Spirit. In today's passage, Paul stops to clarify who the people of the Spirit are. He's not here urging us to live according to the Spirit. He's not giving us any commands or any exhortations in this section. It's often read as if that's what he's doing, but he's not. He's explaining that we do live according to the Spirit. The commands are are forthcoming, but in this section, Paul's drawing the arrow and he's saying, you are here. This is where you are right now. On Paul's map, and it's a rudimentary one that he's drawing, He sketches only two lands or countries or kingdoms. The one is the land of the spirit, the country that belongs to the king. Next to it, he draws another land, the land of the flesh, the country that's in rebellion against the king. Once he sketched out those two lands, which he does in verses 5 through 8, then he'll draw the arrow in verse 9 and say, you are here. So here's the map. It's simple, doesn't have much detail, but it's broad enough to include everyone in the world. There are two lands, the land of the flesh and the land of the spirit. Every human since Adam and Eve, except for Jesus, has been born in the land of the flesh. That includes you and me. That's where we're born. We're natives to that land. We all start there. But to dwell in the land of the spirit, one must be granted accepted status, which in Paul's terminology is the word justification. One must be granted justification and transferred there. We don't start there. Now, in order to make use of Paul's map, we need to know what he means by flesh, the realm of the flesh. What is he talking about? Flesh in his vocabulary is not the same thing as body. This gets confusing because in St. John's vocabulary, it is the same thing, but not in Paul's. So Jesus, for example, had a body, which is what St. John meant when he insists that Jesus came in the flesh But that's not how Paul's using the word here. Jesus was never in the flesh in the sense that Paul's talking about. He lived in a body, but never in the realm of the flesh. When Paul speaks here of the flesh, he's talking about, and here's the definition to kind of keep in mind, the merely natural powers of a human being, deposited by God in us at creation, but needing to be redeemed because they've been alienated from and organized against God. These natural powers of a human being. It's not that the flesh can't be nice. These natural powers can be nice and even religious. Paul demonstrates that in Philippians 3. But the flesh follows its own desires and ambitions as if God didn't exist. God isn't welcome in the land of the flesh. There's still no room in the end. It hasn't changed. Humanity was designed to operate differently. We were designed to operate 
on the constant flow, a constant connection with God and his power. But his power has been cut off to the flesh. It doesn't flow there. It's off the grid. I recently drove through um, Shipshawana and saw that some of the Amish homes there now have electricity. And so when I asked how that was possible, I was told that their bishop allows them to run certain appliances or electronics, that kind of thing, by generating their own electricity, I suppose through solar power or through windmills or that sort of thing. But they're not allowed to connect to the grid. They're not allowed to be on the grid with the English. Well, the flesh is kind of like that. The power, there's power there, but it's disengaged from God. And it doesn't produce enough jewels to run the new life. And when the blackout known as death occurs, it fails completely. The other realm on the map is the land of the spirit. People who live in that realm have something that their counterparts in the land of the flesh do not have. They have a spirit that has been made alive and indwelt by God's spirit. Now, they possess the the merely natural powers that were deposited in all humans by the good God at creation. And they're grateful for those powers. But they're connected to a power source that originates from without and enables them to accomplish what they could not otherwise do. Paul contrasts the people in these two lands, the land of the flesh, land of the spirit. He describes the first as those who exist in terms of flesh. Uh, They live on a purely material being, a plane. The Greek is something like, uh, who have their being according to flesh. Their lives can be explained in natural terms. Paul says that these people think of, or they have their minds set on, or they concentrate on, literally, the things of the flesh. Their mind doesn't think about or trust God, which you may remember from chapter 1, was the first failure in a cascade of failures that took us off the grid and removed us from God. They didn't think about God. Remember, they didn't give thanks to him or glorify him. They didn't retain God, verse 28, chapter 1 says, in their minds. There was no place for God. In the other land, people mind the things of the Spirit. They think about God what he's like, what he wants. One of the fundamental differences, if you and I could see it, between the person who does not have the Spirit and the one who does, has to do with what they think, what they think about. In the realm of the flesh, the mind is enslaved. It is used as a lackey to obtain what the flesh desires. It can be brilliant, but it's still used as a slave. But in the land of the Spirit, the mind is a free servant of God with the important task of figuring out how to obtain what he desires. Of course, the mind has to be renewed to accomplish that. And it doesn't happen immediately or automatically, but it can and does happen in people. Paul says, verse 6, the mind of the flesh... That is, the way of thinking that has been formed around and is set on things of flesh, the thinking that's become a mind set, is death. Now, he doesn't say that it leads to death. He says that it is death. If death is separation from God, the mind formed by serving the flesh is death. It's separated from God. The mind of the spirit, however, 
formed around and set on the things of the Spirit is life. He doesn't say it's alive. He says it's life. But it is a mind alive. It's animated by interaction with God. And it's also peace. He doesn't say peaceful. He says peace. The Greek word for peace is derived from two roots, meaning to join together. The mind of the flesh has no peace because it's torn by conflicting desires as it tries to serve the flesh and satisfy the demands of others at the same time. It craves peace, but it can't obtain it, and so it turns routinely to distraction and to addiction. That's why we live in an age of distraction and addiction. The mind of the Spirit, on the other hand, becomes more and more peaceful as it's renewed. Everything begins to fit together under one goal of pleasing and glorifying God. It operates with brilliant simplicity, while the mind of the flesh operates with shadowy duplicity. The mind of the flesh always ends up being duplicitous because it's torn in two ways. Now, verse 7. The mind of, think of mindset, habitual way of thinking that characterizes, the mind of the flesh is hostile, or really hostility, since it's a noun, to God. Now, that's a strong word. God is a threat to this mind. He is its enemy. This mind does not trust him and will not and cannot, Paul says, Submit to God. So, of course, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, how could they? It's impossible to please God without faith. Remember Hebrews eleven six, And they, however hard they try, can't put their faith in a being to whom they have been an enemy. So, there's the map with his two realms. One is the land of the flesh, which is in rebellion against God. It is into this land, thanks to our father Adam, who expatriated there, that we were born. The other, the land of the Spirit, which is God's realm, and it's where Christ is king and peace has been established. It's into that land that people are transferred when they trust in Christ and submit their lives to him. So sometimes when we read flesh and spirit, we just think of people who are either religious people, spirit, or people who are really uh, carnal people, flesh. But Paul's talking about where you are and who you are in your inner being. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. This is where Paul draws the arrow and writes the caption, you are here. You, he tells the Roman Christians, and by its placement in the sentence, both at the beginning and the end, it's very emphatic in Greek. You are not living in the realm of the flesh. You were transferred into the land of the spirit when you came over to Christ and confessed him as your Lord. Now, Paul's been making the same point in different ways all through the letter. When you believed in Jesus, your situation changed. You changed. Your relationship to God changed. You were 
rescued from the dominion of darkness, this is in Colossians 1.13, and transferred into the kingdom of the son that God loves. Things changed for you. Paul doesn't want Christians to think they're in the same situation they were before they believed in Jesus. He doesn't want them to think that they're just like people who don't believe in Jesus. They've changed. If we don't realize that, then we won't act like it. And we'll miss out on the benefits of living in the realm of the Spirit, of having the Spirit of God. Now, if someone really hasn't come over to God's side, hasn't truly believed in Jesus and confessed him Lord, things haven't changed. And they don't have access to the resources they need to live this life. But if they have, they do. They have the Spirit. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. That's literal. The NIV 2011, um, changed that a little bit. So they didn't want it to be literal. They wanted to suggest that your body is dying because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Scholars read that, and they're not sure what to do with it. Not sure what Paul means when he says your body is dead because of sin. But what it seems to me is he's letting the Roman Christians know that what he's been describing is not some triumphalist Pollyanna or Pauliana in this case, perfectionist state. The body's still going to die. And where sin rules in its members, it's even now a body of death. That's how he put it in chapter 7. There are still untamed places in our bodies where the rule of Christ is not extended. Places where sin holds up and ambushes us when we least expect it. Even after coming to Christ, there is still in some measure separation between God and our bodies that must be overcome. But the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us if we belong to Christ. He will give life to these bodies in some measure now, perhaps in greater measure than any of us imagine. It's what Paul longed for when he said he wanted to know the power of the resurrection. He's talking about in his body, in his life right now. But in full measure at the resurrection of the dead. Life, his life that is our life, Colossians 3.1, will empower not just our spirit, but our bodies. You imagine the body in perfect harmony with the mind, the body capable of things we can't even now imagine. A body, as Paul says to the Philippians, transformed to be like his glorious body. That's what awaits us. And with that inspiring vision before us, Paul's ready to look beyond the you are here arrow to what this realm offers. In this realm, in the Spirit, we can learn to be led by the Spirit rather than driven by the demands of the flesh. In this realm of the Spirit, we can, verse 13, put to death the misdeeds of the body more about that next week. The practices that have become the primary residence of evil in our lives. And the principal obstacle to experiencing the life and power that's available to us through Christ. The Spirit will lead us to deal with those holdout provinces in effective ways. But that's only the beginning of what the spiritual life has to offer. 
Clearing out the rebels that have hunkered down in the far-flung provinces of our body, that's the negative side. The positive side, and we're going to see much more about this next week, includes a growing freedom. How do you put that? An easiness in being who you are so that it fits. A release from fear. Many of us are constantly being dragged around by our fears. That's not what life is like in the realm of the Spirit. There's an assurance that we belong to God and are accepted and loved by Him in this realm. And there is access to God's resources so that we can live for His kingdom in this world in in powerful, remarkable ways. And we'll see more about what that means in practical terms next week. But for now, I want to go back to where we were a few minutes ago about the mind. It's important to realize that you are more than you think. Sometimes people say, you are what you think. That's not true. You are more than what you think. You're much more. You're bigger, remember, on the inside than on the outside. But what you think does play a critical role in your success as a Christ follower. When you believed in Christ Jesus and came over to him, you received a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, who immediately began to reshape the way you think. St. Paul refers to this as the renewing of the mind. It's crucially important work because we can't live differently if we continue thinking the same way. Now, mind renewal is the spirit's work. Thank God. But we can and must cooperate in it. So here are some things we can do to cooperate with the Spirit in the renewal of our minds. First, we can recognize that my thoughts were enslaved to the flesh and have been formed by that slavery. My mind has been conditioned to think in ways that do not serve Christ and do not benefit me. Because of that, my thoughts will not always be true, and I won't know it. I must acknowledge this to be a fact. This is a fundamental part of what it means to be humble. Next, I must wake up to the reality that many of the ideas and images that bombard me every day in conversation and in the media are the propaganda of the realm of the flesh. I need to learn to see through it. The propaganda tells me that I'm the most important being in the world. It tells me that my looks, how I dress, how I carry myself will determine my success. It promises me happiness if I purchase things. It tells me that acting on my desires is what freedom is really about. It tells me that security is found in my portfolio. These are lies, but they are lies that are told over and over, louder and louder, And as Hitler said, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will become the truth. We can believe these lies. If my mind is going to be renewed, and here's the next thing, it's crucial that I control the kind of fuel that it receives. The mind needs fuel. Without it, it immediately begins to break down. 
If my thoughts are exclusively fueled by the ideas and images that pervade popular culture, mind renewal will remain elusive to me. I must introduce other ideas and images into my mind with regularity. First and foremost of these are the ideas and images in the Bible. Taking scripture into the mind through slow and careful reading, and then taking time to think about what you've read, enormously important, memorizing important parts of it, and talking about it with others is the most important thing we can do to cooperate with the Spirit in the renewal of our minds. Now, listening to good music, reading Christian books and blogs, listening to biblical teaching, all of that will also be helpful But the work of mind renewal is not all passive. It must also be active. And scripture is the key. Finally, we must control our thoughts, not be controlled by them. Many people assume they have no control over their thoughts. They've tried to to stop some negative thought they were having, and they failed, and they failed over and over again, and now they assume that that's just the way it is. You have to live with it. That is not true. A person may have to turn troublemaking thoughts away 20 times in an hour, 50 times in an hour, but it can be done, and we must learn how to do it. Eventually, those thoughts will quit coming. And of course, we'll need to replace them with other thoughts. Otherwise, they'll return. But the Spirit will help us with that. Have you seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? It's based on the story of John Nash. He's a brilliant Nobel Prize winning uh, mathematician at Princeton who suffered from debilitating schizophrenia. He, he went through, his life just was unraveling because of the schizophrenia. And so he went to uh, doctors. This is back in the late 50s, early 60s. He went through shock therapy, took medications that left him totally unable to do math anymore. Couldn't do his work. He couldn't take care of his family. I think his wife left him. It was just a disaster. And at some point, he decided to get off the meds. And he reasoned his way back to some kind of normalcy. He returned to Princeton, and in 1994, he received the Nobel Prize. In the movie, and I don't know how close this is to reality, but in the movie, Nash is interviewed by an envoy from the Nobel Committee who's trying to assess his mental state and his suitability as a prize recipient. They want to make sure that he's not going to embarrass the Nobel Committee by something he does. And, of course, Nash knows what this guy is thinking while he's asking him questions. And so he says sort of tongue-in-cheek, I am crazy. Of course, I got the guy's attention. And then he becomes serious and says, you know, I take the newer medications. But I still see things that are not here. I just choose not to acknowledge them. Like a diet of the mind, I just choose not to indulge certain appetites. Do you realize we can do that too? We can choose not to accept thoughts that serve the flesh. We can take those thoughts captive. We can set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
We can do this because we have the Spirit and access to the King's resources. And things have changed because of where we are in Christ. We can do this and must do this because the life it opens up to us is too good to miss. All right, let's pray. Lord, I just said we could do this and must do it. And I know there's a difference between that and saying we will do it. But by your grace and the power of your spirit, we will do this for Jesus' sake. Make it so as we cooperate with you. In Christ our Lord's name.